Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of John called The Crossroad with a message entitled The Identity of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 21 to 29, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. If you think about it, there are moments in the life of a person, maybe it's a single moment, that that one moment communicates everything that we might want to know about them. Here's an example. Winston Churchill's famous, we will never surrender speech. His response to the threat of Hitler and of the Nazis, his commitment to fighting on forever, that's what it took. The idea of never surrendering is how we all remember that man. But there are other less dramatic moments that also define people. A man and a woman stand at an altar and then before God, they say the words, forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you alone. And then 60 years later, that's who they are, defined by one act said before a minister, said at a sacred altar. Well, I could think of many more such moments and they really are remarkable things. You know, the ancient Greeks had two different words for the word time. One word was the word chronos. We get our English word chronology from that word. It's like asking someone, what time is it? And then they look at their watch and they say, well, it's 1.30. That's the chronological passing of time. But the Greeks had another word for time and it was the word kairos. It refers to an opportune moment or a season, an event. It can refer to a God-ordained moment, a, a defining moment in a life. Today, we're studying John 8, 21 to 30, and as we do, we're going to see a pivotal statement about a defining moment, and we're going to find that in verse 28. Jesus is speaking, and he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. That is to say, the cross is the defining moment which tells us who Jesus is. Everything you think about Jesus should be read or seen through that one defining kairos moment. Think of it by going back to the illustration of Winston Churchill. He was, by all accounts, you know, a stubborn, never quit, keep on fighting kind of a man. But when the dark threat of Nazi invasion hung over England, his role as prime minister and his reaction to the threat has for all times been revealed through that we shall never surrender speech. In the same way, the cross Jesus hanging, bleeding, suffering, dying, has for all times revealed who he actually is. That's the theme, the identity of Jesus. And in case you aren't sure how this relates to you, let me explain. Jesus will say that believing in his true identity has everything in the world to do with whether you're going to die in your sins unforgiven, standing before the judgment of God without defense, or whether you're going to die forgiven and exonerated and accepted in a place of eternity. That's the point of application. It comes down to something as simple as this. Are you going to get to heaven? Okay, let's start at the beginning. I'm reading John 8, 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, as we read the sentence, it becomes quite clear that we're picking up a conversation right in midstream. The word, so he said to them again, means that there's been a theme. It's been repeated over and over again. It's a thought that Jesus is expressing. Well, in chapter 8, we actually see a theme, and it's all about uh, the identity of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus was saying several things about his identity. First, he was saying that he comes from the Father. 
And second, that he's going away. And then third, he says that everything he says and does comes directly from the Father. In fact, let me take you back to John 7, 33 to 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, back in chapter 7, where Jesus said that, you know, that saying was deeply confusing. I mean, what's he talking about? Where's he going? Is he going to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks to teach the Jewish Greeks? I mean, some thought that. And then they thought, well, that can't be right because he said it's impossible for us to go where he's going. So no one knew what he's talking about. But now in chapter 8, verse 21, he repeats that theme. He's going away, but now for the first time he adds, well, it sounds ominous. I will be gone and you're going to look for me. Indeed, the grammar indicates that they're going to continually look for him over and over again. And they'll be unable to find him. And finally, they will die. And when they do, they'll be deeply entrenched in their sin, having no hope until they come to the final judgment. And there they're going to be damned. So no one of the Jewish religious leaders knew what Jesus was talking about. But we do. And we can examine the book of John and it becomes quite clear what Jesus was talking about. Going away, well, that means dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, being seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what he meant. Now, how is it that Jesus tells the Jews that they will be constantly looking for him? So notice, please, that I've made the point that when in the book of John we read the phrase, the Jews, it rarely refers to the Jewish people the way we would use that phrase today. For John, the Jews refers to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the scribes. And indeed, it refers to the, the ruling Jewish religious establishment. Well, then if that's so, how can Jesus say, you're going to be constantly looking for me? I mean, after all, they were trying to kill him. They wanted to be done with him once and for all. And certainly, after his cross, they weren't longing for him. I mean, they were just glad to get rid of him. But here a little insight is in order. We have to remember who Jesus claimed to be. I mean, he claimed to be nothing short of the Messiah. And so Jesus says, you'll be constantly looking for the Messiah all the days of your life. You'll long for him, but he'll never come because you've already rejected the only Messiah that was available to you. And in consequence, your hope is gone and all that's left for you is dying in your sins. So then that's the introduction to our passage. I mean, Jesus is telling the Jewish religious establishment that this is their hour. This is their Kairos moment. The Messiah has stood before them. And once he's gone, they'll be lost in a dark hallway. They'll look for something that will never come until the day of judgment arrives. So please notice, would you? I mean, if you miss this, you miss everything. I mean, can you imagine anyone speaking this way? Imagine anyone else saying, if you reject me, you're going to reject your eternal hope. Now then, from that, we get to the nub of the issue. Verses 22 to 24 record Jesus as saying that he believes, I mean, listen to this, because this is significant now, Jesus believed that he was the difference between eternal damnation and eternal salvation. Look, this is not some fundamentalist pastor's idea of who Jesus is. No, no, these are Jesus' actual words. So let's listen in on the debate between Jesus and the religious teachers. I'm reading now John 8, 22 to 24. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, one step at a time. We notice that there's still a lot of confusion here. Earlier on, when he said he was going away and they would never be able to get to where he was, you remember that they wondered whether he was going to leave the land of Israel and that he was going to go over to the Greek-speaking world. But by now, they'd abandoned that idea. That must not be what he meant at all. And so they ask, hmm, he must mean death. I wonder if he's going to commit suicide. Now, Jesus is not interested in correcting their misguided speculation. He's interested in cutting through all of this. He's interested in the central issue. He starts by contrasting the difference between himself and them. He says it comes down to one thing. I'm from above and you are from below. Now, please, when you read that, I mean, don't oversimplify it. It, He's not saying I'm from heaven and you're from hell or you're from the underworld. That's not what he's saying. See, Jesus is saying that the difference between him and every other person on this planet is where we originate. The rest of the world originates from the earth, but he comes from the very presence of the Father. And that has implications. I mean, this world is fallen. It's ruined by sin. Death haunts the human race. Well, so do lies and deception and errors and false belief systems confusion, greed, and doing what it takes to get our own way. And in the process, we harm others. All of that's called sin. And everyone born in this world is a part of a sinful and fallen human race. To be from below is to be born in fallenness. And there's no escape from that, except, says Jesus, for me. I'm the one exception to all of that. I didn't originate from here. I came down to this world. I entered into the human race. I came from above. I'm not a part of this fallen world. Listen, those words, well, they're either the words of the most deluded egomaniac the world has ever seen, or they are the true words of the Son of God. How can we know? Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. C.S. Lewis once remarked that Jesus is either who he said he was, or on the other hand, he's a madman or even something worse. But, said Lewis, one thing is clear. We should stop coming up with all that patronizing nonsense about who he is. Well, like what? 
Well, said Lewis, like the patronizing nonsense that he's a great moral teacher or that he's a great prophet or that he's a great reformer. It's patronizing because Jesus said that he alone of all the peoples of the earth came directly from the presence of the Father. And of course, he says more. You know, the crux of the entire issue is found in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Well, okay. Jesus believed that the difference between heaven and hell lay in not how good we are, or whether our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, or whether we're doing our level best, or how religious we are even, how we claim to care for other people. Rather, Jesus said that unless we believe that, well, in his words, I am he, or quite literally, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. The Greek, that is the language that John used to convey Jesus' meaning, are the words ego eimi, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, that, of course, raises the question of what he means by I am. I mean, what are we supposed to believe? Why is that so important? Let me explain what Jesus definitely didn't mean. You know, some of you might be aware of one religious teacher, a man named Joel Osteen. Now, Osteen writes, when you speak the right I am's, you're inviting the goodness of God. I am blessed. I am talented. I am anointed. Your words have creative power. With your words, you can bless your future, says Osteen. So for Osteen, I am is a way of speaking and thinking about yourself. You know, I'm a great woman or a man. I'm, I'm a person of enormous potential. I'm a basically good person. I'm going to make a bunch of money. I am going to heaven. Look, this way of speaking really lies at the heart of all of the spirituality of the ancient pagans. It's the idea that mortals can become like the gods. They can become heroes and achieve the status of the divine. You know, that way of thinking is not the ancient Hebrew way of thinking, nor the thinking of the Bible. You know, for instance, listen to Jeremiah 2 verse 23. It's an I am statement. How can you say, I am not unclean? See, Jeremiah noted that the people of Israel were saying, I'm holy, I'm not unclean. And Jeremiah says, well, saying so, don't make it so. Or how about several verses later in Jeremiah 2.35, you say, I am innocent. Now, of course, says Jeremiah, you aren't innocent at all. Or do you want a really interesting I am statement? Well, try Revelation 3.17. It's a message to the church of Laodicea from Jesus. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Saying I am, says the Bible, can lead to an incredible self-delusion. I mean, you might claim I'm the king of Siam, or I'm as gifted as Mozart, or I'm as powerful as Caesar Augustus, or I'm as rich as Warren Buffett. But all you're doing is showing off your capacity for crazy self-delusion. Saying it don't make it so. See, I'm reminded of a number of years ago, a very famous actress coming in touch with her own spirituality. She's standing on a beach with arms outstretched, and she cries out, I am a god. Now, that goddess now today, she's a really old lady, and she's soon going to die. Now, don't you see the words I am often are the beginning of grand boasts that given enough time will prove emptiness. James 3 verse 5 says that tongue boasts great things, and yet that boast is set on fire by hell itself. Now, by now, don't you see how careful we must be about beginning a sentence with the words, I am? 
Indeed, the words, I am, when succeeded by great things, are words reserved for God. You know, want some examples? Isaiah 41, verse 4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am, that is, I am he. Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am, or I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be one after me. One more example, Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So please notice in those passages, the declaration I am is a declaration that's reserved for God. Indeed, so serious is that matter that if you make such a declaration that is a human being does it, it's blasphemy. Isaiah 47, 8 and 9. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasure who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, loss of children and widowhood shall come to you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and great power of your enchantments. That is to say, to declare I am, a human being doing that, it's called sorcery. It invites the wrath of God. God will in time defeat you. So ege me, I am, that's just not another thing to say. Now then, back to John 8, 24. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It seems that at this moment, the religious leaders can hardly believe their ears. Surely, he's not saying what he appears to be saying. So, let's go to verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. If he says, I am, then I am what or who? And Jesus responds, aren't you listening? Are you paying no attention, none at all? I mean, after all, I just said I am from above. What do you think that means? Apparently, what he is saying was so outrageous and so over the top, so potentially profane, that even they couldn't imagine that he would be saying that. Now, at this point, everything but everything in this dispute turns on this next passage. So don't skip over it. John 8, 26 to 28. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, there's some startling claims here. I have much to judge, verse 26. That's surprising because later in John 12, 47, Jesus will say, I've not come to judge the world, but to save it. But then it becomes quite apparent what he means. In the present moment, he's not judging, but he's offering salvation. But at the end of the age, yeah, he is the one who will judge. And this is certainly a part of what he means when he says, I am. I'm the one come from the Father who will stand at the end of the age and judge everyone. But then he adds something. When you have lifted me up, that's when you'll know that ego me I am. Remember when I started, I said that there are certain moments in a person's life that define for all time both who they are and how everyone thinks of them after that. I mentioned Winston Churchill's famous never surrender speech and how that one speech seems to define what we know of that man. 
We know a lot about Jesus, but if you were to put it all together, Christ on a cross, Christ lifted up, that defines him. Jesus said of the cross, once that's accomplished, you will know that I am, ego e me. I and the Father are one. Why is that? Because in the end, after the cross, he is laid in a tomb, and he rises from the tomb, and he declares his power over life and death, and that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The cross in the end demonstrates that Jesus acted in the will of the Father. He suffered and died for a lost human race. He is the world's only Savior. He is the only hope of everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. And he demonstrates that truth by his resurrection from the dead. It's going to be impossible, says Jesus, after the cross to ever deny who I truly am. I am the Lord. I am given authority over life and death, and one's only hope for everlasting life will depend on me. That defines Jesus. And that's why it's impossible to ignore him. And that's why we'll never get around the cross of Jesus. And that's why our eternal future will depend on whether or not we entrust our souls to him or whether or not we turn and walk from him. These are the matters from which all eternity flow. John, maybe your message today brings us to, I think, what is something of a fundamental question. Uh, Why does the cross of Jesus make Jesus stand out from everyone else? Yeah, and not only stand out, but the only Savior, the only one. Uh, Ben, you know, in this world of, you know, multiple religious options, multiple philosophical options, we are saying that Jesus is the only forgiveness of sins that we have. There is no other Savior, and the cross tells us that. You know, Ben, I want to say this, that, you know, there is no other religion in the world that tells us how our sins can be dealt with. I don't know of any other religion that deals with the, with the, this naughty problem that uh, sin somehow has to be paid for. Uh, either through our own death or through the death of the Son of God. So this is the cross makes Jesus alone. He is fundamentally unique. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us tomorrow as we continue in our series, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirm special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca 
or call 1-800-663-2425.